Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Tyler Jensen and Roman Cimenti are the directorial duo behind Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. This is a documentary that dives deep into the story behind A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which was a sequel that was very notorious for its overtly homoerotic innuendo and the controversy that ensued from this movie. So I really enjoyed this documentary, not just because I'm a horror fan and love Freddy Krueger movies, but... Scream Queens is unexpectedly a very emotional journey and ultimately a very poignant story about forgiveness and the gay experience in Reagan era America during the 1980s, which was a time that was loaded with a lot of cultural repression, hatred and fear over the AIDS crisis. So the movie follows actor Mark Patton who was ridiculed for his gay portrayal in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And uh, it's kind of crazy because that was really not that long ago. But in the movie, we follow him throughout the course of a year on the horror convention circuit where he interacts with fans. And along the way, he confronts the producers and writers who, in effect, tarnished his career. It uh, it's It's... It definitely packs a huge emotional punch in all in all. It feels like a very important watch. So I do recommend it. But in the meantime... Without further ado, here are the directors, Tyler Jensen and Roman Cimenti. How's the reception been so far? How's the, the overall tour been? It's it's just been nonstop, like, people freaking out. Really? Is, yeah, like, kind of awesome, but not what I was prepared for. Mm-hmm. Like, the, it, it, a very emotional response from a lot of people, you know? Yeah. So, well, yeah, one of the... Great. One of the things I noticed off the bat, and I mean, I'm obviously a huge horror fan, have seen a lot of horror documentaries, and a lot of them are like fan documentaries, which is fine. Yeah. But this movie, it, it it pleased the horror fans, but it had such far-reaching, wider, universal themes that I thought were it was un- the the, the prof- profundity profound nature of the yeah. uh, of the of the bigger message was far beyond what i expected approaching the movie so i can only imagine that uh that the reception's been great right people will come up to us after the film they're like i didn't know what i was expecting or i thought i knew what i was going to get from this movie walking in and you delivered something so much more and i don't have a question they just say thank you mm. like i didn't know i needed to hear all of that wow but yeah, and a lot of the Q and A's do get real emotional. We've had people come up and cry and tell their life stories in response to Marks, and how that kind of makes a safe space for them to do so is really exciting to be a part of. Yeah, and not, not necessarily something that we anticipated when we made this. Yeah, but we didn't want to make a fan film from day one. That wasn't the intention ever. Yeah, we were huge fans. But that wasn't interesting to me, you know, because there was already Never Sleep Again and a lot of things in the works. And I just felt like this story isn't it's not going to serve our story at all to be all about the behind the scenes of Nightmare on Elm Street, too, you know, because yeah. that's that's kind of shallow and short lived. And, and it, you can't really focus on that and uh, and Mark's personal story. It just they don't really go hand in hand in the long run. So. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the movie come together? I mean, could you walk me through the process from the original idea to how you got to having the whole thing wrapped? Oh, God, that's a lot. <laughs> Do you tall have order. four years of your time to, uh, <laughs> to go? Yes. Yeah. In a nutshell, uh, it started with me one night thinking, what the hell happened to Mark Patton? That was my favorite movie i love that guy he was a great actor why have i never thought of him before in the middle of the night so i looked him up and he was online he was chatting with people he was accessible and he was already kind of teasing the ideas of telling this story i'm like wow that's such a great story that nobody's heard so i just wrote to him and we we started a relationship and went through a few phases of like what how what is this movie going to be before it finally landed in my lap entirely like here you guys just run with it so i met tyler and uh i at the time it was a very rare thing to meet a like-minded gay person who's a huge horror fan now that's become a big 
uh, a popular thing. But at the time, that was not something that happened often. So when I met him and we were both working in film, I thought this would be a great person to work with because it's this is not this was not a a task that I could take on by myself. It was a monument. What we wanted to do from the get go was much bigger than like, hey, let's just like show the world that Mark Patton's back. It's like, no, this is a bigger picture, and I knew that. So then Tyler came on, and we became a duo that really, like, essentially, we just, everything was like, I don't know if we're going to get to talk to Robert England. I don't know if Robert Russell is going to be available. Let's just, like, corner them at a show and make it happen. And, and, it, and it went from there. Everyone was super agreeable. It was, it was very interesting. Um, Roman's a sound engineer. I'm an editor, mostly. And I, when we were working on a project together, and I heard him talk about this, and he's like, I'm going to do sound for this project. Essentially, like, he was more interested in getting the story told than being the one to tell it. He's like, I just want to be a part of it. And I'm so passionately involved in what you're trying to do that I am going to volunteer my services. Whoa. And when I heard that, like I heard Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I heard Mark Patton. I'm like, I'm in. Like, I don't care. I volunteered to edit the film. And then I'm like, I will shoot your B-roll. And then I get to Florida for the first shoot. And I'm like, I can help you tell the story. Like it wow. was definitely no one set out to control this thing it happened organically the people involved all came to us because they wanted to be a part of it because this this project touched a lot of different people over over time yeah definitely that's so, right it was it was definitely a lot you know like he said there's a lot of people that came on board to help us with everything you can think of from extra cameras to color graphics but also just the people involved, the Nightmare on Elm Street cast. They were, uh, I think a lot of them were surprised because they hadn't heard any of this from Mark, but a lot of them were also deeply moved by this, that they they were a part of it, even without knowing it. So they've all been very accommodating. And um, I mean, everybody, everybody right. sat down for us and talked and they they loved it. It's also kind of cool probably to be in a horror movie in the 80s and then 30 years later, realize, oh, shit, it's actually a part of something bigger, mm -hmm. you know? I guess that's what every actor would love to find themselves in. But, uh, yeah, no, it was awesome. We, and I think that we did um, we did Horror Hound, right? Were they right. all there again? And this is after they yeah. had done some initial interviews, and everyone was super excited, and the word was starting to get out. That's when we launched our Kickstarter. Hmm. And that's... You know, before that happened, we didn't know if we actually had a fan base. This was going to be it. They were still mocking Mark Patton in Nightmare 2 online. You couldn't type in Freddy's Revenge without people saying, oh, it's Mark the faggot and this movie sucks. And that was nonstop. So we didn't know if this if this was going to be a thing. But the Kickstarter kind of went crazy. And we knew at that point. A lot of people came out of the woodwork from there. Being yeah. Like, you need to tell the story and you need to include this aspect of it and this aspect of it. So we had an idea of what our film was and then the Kickstarter happened and it blew up in all the best way possible. So that's why we cover so many topics in the film. It's because people came to us or like, this is a part of it and you need mm. to include it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was part of my next question, which was typically when people approach a documentary, they do have a preconceived notion of what they want to film, but then there's an element of just observation and allowing the real story to unfold. So I'm wondering how much did the, did, did the story change when you went into production? I mean, how much shifted as you were filming? I think, um, all of it, <laughs> it was so, for me personally, my intention always was the our ending. The way I, I knew where my end goal was, but knowing what was gonna happen with Mark was all up in the air. You know, like there's it's it's talked about how he confronts a lot of issues, but like we didn't know if he was gonna have that opportunity when we were on the road with him. We just had to take each thing as it came. Uh, you know, like how I had said that a lot of we just had to closet uh 
corner a lot of people to, to you know, hey, talk to us about this thing. Like, no one was really prepared for any of the interviews, so everything in it is pretty authentic. It's on the spot. And yeah. I think that we kind of had this idea. We knew about Mark's fan base because we had gone to the shows and seen how all these people respond to him. Uh, lines of people just waiting to pour their hearts out to him. So we knew there was that aspect. But we didn't anticipate just how intimately we were going to follow him and, you know, con having these conversations with his peers. So as that happens, we're rewriting saying, okay, I see where this could go. Um, so that, right? I mean, did you kind of foresee the way it was going to end? Uh, no. And the fact that the final showdown was not part of the story, like, Oh, wow. So that we got lucky in that regard. And I am, it definitely like brings the story to a, a new point that suddenly like opens up the whole thing. It's like, it's not about this movie. It's not about this experience. It's about, um, resentment and how long, you hold on to things and what it takes for, for you to get over them. And what, what they become when you hold on, when you carry them for so long. Right. And it's, it's rare that people get an opportunity to reevaluate those things and go investigate them. And we got super lucky that we, we have that confrontation in the end. Yeah. I mean, that was such a climactic element of it. I mean, I was, practically biting my fingernails watch like how is this going to go down <laughs> but, yeah, that, was, uh, that, that was a very i think that was pretty much the only interview with the elm street people that we had planned ahead of time mm -hmm. everything else kind of happened on the fly that the so there's that fireside chat with the whole cast that happens at the convention and then the next morning jack is literally waiting for us to like have more conversations like we didn't plan that that wasn't anything that we were still setting we were preparing we were for, the for the day and they all start like, going I gotta, I gotta tell you something and that's when i knew that we had a bigger story mm. yeah that and then mark's first hotel room chat about his whole life because i all up until that point i thought we were still making a nightmare two doc and then suddenly when i get the whole backstory it's like oh this, this is where we have to go. Mm -hmm. Did the process of making this unearth any other similar stories behind any other movies, either horror or otherwise? It, it, it unearthed a lot of similar stories within ourselves. I don't know about other movies, you know, like gossip within the, the actor's realm, not so much. Um, well, we did speak to other actors who all had similar experiences, but it was nothing that would tie directly to films they were in. It was just living in 1980s Hollywood. Right. So Hollywood as a whole would have been the culprit there. Um, but no, I think Elm Street 2 kind of stands alone as being tied so closely to such a, how would you describe it? Like a, it's just woven into this story in a way that I don't know any other movie has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems like it is a movie that has been embraced by the gay community, regardless of the fact that initially it was not exactly open about the fact that it, it did have a lot of gay s subtext to it. Although it wasn't exactly so, subtext, but now it seems like it is fully embraced by the community. I mean, right. With that in mind, are there any other, horror movies that are embraced by the community that are either new or that are, that are old, that are notable. Yeah. Well, you've got I mean, your favorite. My, my two favorites are seat of Chucky and hello, Mary Lou prom night Two, which I don't feel like either of them gets a good rep in the horror world. Right. Me as a gay man, like I have the most fun with those things. Like those are, a wink and a nod to me specifically that I can't get enough of. Actually, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 is like a lesbian sister to Freddy's Revenge. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's got a lot of stuff. It's only been reevaluated recently. Right. 
I remember when it came out in the 80s. I loved the commercial. It was in and out really quick. No one went to see it. Now, we've been talking about it so much. It's We've heard podcast reviews of it. It's a fantastic movie, and it has right. a lot of really scandalous elements to it. It's got a female Freddy Krueger yeah. <clears throat> who uses sexuality as, as her weapon of choice. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Late 80s. There was a lot that was birthed during that time, you know? Um, I do think that there's, so we, I don't think these movies have been fully embraced by the gay community. I think they tend to gravitate towards heroes still, um, more than like this underlying subtext that comes out later, but things like Jennifer's body and things where you're like, wow, that girl's badass. Like, I love this. We're still kind of latching on to those types of characters because we still need that, um, powerful representation i suppose someone that you could be like yeah she'll rip your head off i like that <laughs> so i to me that's always the first one i think of because it was kind of um not shunned it just it didn't do well when it came out but now everyone seems to be talking about it again mm-hmm. i do love it. yeah yeah that's a great one yeah i, I couldn't understand uh, why nobody was into jennifer's body when it came out but it's it's having a renaissance now I yeah, saw right? it three times in the theater. I <laughs> bought my Blu-ray immediately. Uh, I think it was probably it had to do with the marketing. I think that there was something about a, if I if I remember correctly, they the marketing campaign seemed like it ha- was trying to appeal more to f- a feminine audience, which wasn't biting. And I think that uh, actually quite the reverse it was, was it. They were relying heavily on the hotness of Megan Fox. So it was like, oh, she's going to be naked in this movie. For <clears throat> It was marketing to teenage boys when really it's a story about toxic female friendships. And those two things, it was like a bait and switch for the audience. Yeah, but we, she was hot in the movie. So if you're <clears throat> a teenage boy going to see that, you're, right. are you disappointed? But it, it wasn't, it didn't deliver on that promise. Oh, like boobies and stuff? Right. So <laughs> I, I just listened to a... A talk between Megan Fox and Diablo Cody on Entertainment Tonight, mm. and she was Diablo Cody saved the scorecard from the test audience, from you know an eighteen-year-old white dude who's like needs more boobies, mm. and he spelled boobies B E W B I E S, and I was like, oh okay, that's amazing. I still love it. That's amazing. <laughs> The great quote but of the script as well. That kind of goes into a point that we're trying to make, which is the old stereotype of the horror fan is is changing a lot. Like that is not who the the, the production companies are putting all. They're not putting all their eggs in their basket for that that type of guy, because they're now realizing that there's like. Fans that are women, that are gay men, that are black, that are all, everyone else is like clam. If if you go down to like Mexico, they love Chucky, you know, like they've got, there's a fan, there's fans all over the place. So if you're just going to be trying to deliver the same thing to the same people, then you're going to alienate everyone else. And then there goes all your money. So, yeah, I do think we're in a new age where also people are hungry for new types of stories Mm. and I think that's why Elm Street 2 is having a resurgence is because they're like, wow, there was more layers to this. So right. it's more enjoyable now. We have a we've raised the bar a little bit on what we what is scary to us because we need that relatability. And while no one could relate to Freddy's Revenge in 1985, I think now there's more people that are. There's a lot of straight males that are like, I can identify with that character Jesse because he was an outcast at school. People treated me like shit, you know, like it's, there's a, there's a new lens now with the audience right. and that's good. And part of the conversation also is for a generation of gay people, gay men specifically, um, Freddy's revenge was the accessible gay film that they had access to. And it wasn't obvious. Like they would go rent scary movies with their friends and everyone's watching a horror movie together, but for you know, gay men, they're picking up on the sexuality of Nightmare 2, the male nudity, just identifying with Jesse as well, and get to relish in that 
without everyone else around them knowing that, like, oh, they're watching a gay movie. So your parents aren't going to look at you differently if you rent Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in the same way that you rent Call Me By Your Name or Brokeback Mountain when you're 10 years old. Right. And this conversation comes up a lot. People are like, this is the first thing I could get my hands on. And therefore, it holds a very special place in my heart. Wow. So for a lot of people, it was the first... It was the first movie that just kind of that that did explore homosexuality that they had seen right. that explored it but head on. No, representation, not even the homosexuality of it, but for a teen movie in the '80s to have any like female nudity is rampant. It's in everything. To have male nudity and exclusively male nudity in a movie, this is the one of the only times that you get that, especially in a popular horror franchise of the time. Right. So everyone's, whoa, this Mm. is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing I I did want to remark on about the movie is it felt the, the exploration of the themes and the overall message behind it. It did feel very natural, like a very naturally explored all of these different themes. It didn't seem like it had that much of an agenda in that regard, but the, the messages came across very, very naturally. So I was wondering that being said, were there any really specific messages that you did want audiences to walk away with? In our film? Yeah. Okay. Um, definitely. It was that, that call to the younger generation to know their history and be aware that, I mean, we started this, it was 2015, Obama was still president. We were still were like in a happy, blissfully unaware that the world's about to change kind of message and gay marriage was legal. The younger generation, especially the ones who are coming up to Mark, don't know the horrors of AIDS, don't know the struggle that was fought and paid for for them to grow up and be accepted more so than they were two generations before. So then the world changed overnight and all of these fears came back and suddenly we weren't necessarily talking to, you know, just a few people. Suddenly it's like very present and very terrifying again. Yeah. I do think that having kind of grown up in the shadow of AIDS through the 80s and 90s myself, I do I did feel like that was a message that needed to come out. Like I didn't Mark's story having firsthand experience losing all his friends um, is something everyone needs to hear. I do think that a lot of the younger generation don't they weren't really aware of what it was like to grow up as a gay kid feeling like that's your legacy. Like that it's so prevalent that like, Oh, there's nothing we can do to stop AIDS. And this is, and that the, the trauma that you carry with you into your adulthood is, is monumental. And so I feel like for myself going through this movie, it really helped me unpack a lot of stuff, but also I feel like we need to keep spreading that message so that people don't take it for granted. So it doesn't happen again. Or if something happens, people are ready. And I also feel like we have the other message that I was excited about, honestly, was the fact that we were going to be able to tell this tale to a straight audience as well as a gay audience. Because there's not a lot of gay movies that reach across the aisle like that. If it's a if it's about AIDS, it usually gets, you know, gay people will tend to go and watch those documentaries. Mm -hmm. So this is to me exciting because now we get to have the conversation with a broader audience. And I feel like that's the only real way change happens is through our allies. So right. and a lot of it was also uh, trying to take the stigma away from HIV positive people. Totally. Um, for a lot of people, they heard about AIDS in the nineties and like did no research. So you still see a lot of like negative comments about people living with HIV and we're like, you don't need to have the stigma anymore. We have that breakdown of like undetectable is untransmissible. And hopefully we got a lot of comments from AIDS survivors and our San Francisco show. And they're like, you told it as it is. And we got 
a lot of comments from young gay men who are recently HIV positive. They're like, thank you for telling this audience about being um, undetectable because we're still fighting a lot of stigma and it's not the death sentence that it was mm. in the 80s. Wow. Wow. This movie is just, it's, it's done so much. I mean, that's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Did you expect this much of a response? I didn't think that I can't, I can't think that far ahead when you're trying to put together a film, you're so you're drowning in all of your edits and (laughs) literally, literally (laughs) and everything that like to start dreaming big adds this extra weight that then clouds your, your, your production. So no, I, yeah. I did it anyway. Yeah, we, we definitely had to put on the blinders. We had to like stop checking social media and just like get the film done. Mm-hmm. And it was many years, many late nights in our studio, just locking ourselves in, going over every detail, every, you know, chapter of the film, making, hopefully making sure that it connects to anybody. And then when we finally started showing people and they come back with tears in their eyes, we're like, oh, I think it worked. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, we had forgotten the importance of the message and the story by getting so uh, macro with the edit that when we were actually able to step back and watch it start to finish that we're like, Oh, we've, we've got something powerful here. Yeah. It was, it was a lot though, because our main from, I wanted the main focus to be, can your mother sit down and watch this and understand what we're talking about? Having never seen a Freddie movie, you know? So, and that's a tall order because you got to get them up to speed with scream Queens and 80s slashers and the entire franchise of nightmare on Elm street and the legacy that they have and how, you know, and fans take all that very particular, you know, they're like, that's not the right glove for the, for the movie for part four, you know? So, there's all that stuff to consider too, you know, and they, and we would get emails all the time from people wanting to know details about thinking they're talking to Mark, you know, he's, he's so wonderful in the fact that he's actually opened himself up to communication with people on Facebook, on Instagram, and you can write him and he will write you back. But then there's also the flip side, which is, they want to know everything that was going on at all times. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, when you're putting together a movie like this, you kind of have to disappear. So yeah. that was a challenge. Did you guys edit it yourself? Yourself? Yeah. Okay. How was it, uh, how was it editing your own movie? I would imagine it's probably f- after a while. thing you can do. What? <laughs> the dumbest thing you can do. <laughs> well, was it I difficult mean- to be objective? about the edits we, since you're so no, close. No, because we thought about every right. every millisecond right. of it. So Tyler has, he's he's brilliant at putting together, first he's developed his own style that I believe is what makes Scream Queen as likable and easy to watch even though it's long. And there's a lot, lot of avenues we go down, but he has his own style, which really is amazing. Uh, but that being said, before you can really like sprinkle all that glitter on something, you've got to you've got to lay down the foundations, and that is insane. So yeah, that was that was the hardest part, and I think we were fighting a lot in the beginning to how to tell the story, and we were trying not to use VO, and our first cut was kind of a disaster because no one knew. They didn't understand all the Freddy stuff that we took for granted. We're just like, oh, fans will totally know what we're talking about. And all the people were like, I don't I don't know what this is. Yeah. Mm. And we had to like shift gears. We started writing VO. A good friend of mine is Cecil Baldwin. And he's like, oh, you know I'm going to do your VO, right? Like I'm volunteering myself right now. That was another character, yeah. But yeah, I... I don't know if if I would I would to say that we edited <laughs> editing your own movie is a beast, but in this case we knew we knew everything. You know, you've got hundreds of hours of footage. Right. So to hand that off to somebody else, and we did have some other people come in to try and like give us input or help, right. but it just always felt like 
but we know all the nuances here. It was hard to let go of that control. Right, right. And it was... I would scream about that all the time. Right. But in the end, I guess I, it worked out. I don't know if, if we had another editor, if it would have gotten done any quicker. Hmm. I think because it took us years to put this together and we actually got to live with this footage and like go over it as often as we did, we kind of found a deeper meaning through mm. all of it. Whereas if you look back at our first cuts, it's very much like meat, potatoes and no, no flavor. But, I don't, but don't you think that a lot of this has, it's that we were also wearing so many hats because I think with this, it's also about the, the, we had to play Nancy Drew all the time. We had to go find stuff from an era that they didn't have things recorded. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's it's funny. The difference between Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is massive in terms of what you can find online. Mm-hmm. That's when they really boosted their promotions. They have promos. They have advertisements, photos. They didn't have all that for part two. So we yeah. had to really, like... They didn't have it for part one either. Like one day yeah. has even less. There's more stuff made about part one now. But mm. Part they, two they was hard. They didn't do any like red carpet stuff. It was like this demon that it showed up one night. We literally had to get stuff from people that just happened to have it in their attic and forgot all about it. Wow. And we had to put the word out. And like, so again, it goes back to people offering to help us. So it really was this like giant communal thing in in the end. But like when you're, how do you find something if you don't know who to ask? Right. Did you ever come across any commentary from Wes Craven about Nightmare 2? Well, he's made a couple remarks within like uh, Fangoria. But no, he kind of was not involved at all. Uh, I think there's a lot of, a lot of talk about he, his opinions on the movie, but I think it, I, honestly, I think it was all a business thing. He mm. just was like, this is not the direction I'm going. And I'm also busy on something else. And then there he's lured in to help make some changes because his name attached Yeah, in the industry. It's really like if they can slap your name on something, that's all that matters. Right. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people have, the younger generation now has the MCU where like every film is planned out well in advance that you have a 20 film franchise that is interwoven expertly with TV and comic books. That is a new thing. (laughs) They didn't make films. They didn't make franchises like this in the eighties. It was like, we're going to make a movie. Oh wait, it's successful. Let's make another one. It wasn't some grand planning over the whole series like there is today like if you pitch a movie you got to pitch seven of them so cool were there any um well robert england felt he he seemed like he was he had a lot to say on the topic it seemed like he had been waiting for somebody to talk to him about this what was that overall interview process like with with him there was no process we said do you want to talk to us and he just wouldn't stop so it was awesome right right. (laughs) no we shot all those at the florida show and it was a first time convention and we got super lucky that it was not very well attended. So all these people had 20 minutes of downtime to like step away from their table. We've gone to other conventions since then and there's a line for every one of them out the door and they don't get a moment to even go to the bathroom, let alone take 20 minutes, 30 minutes to talk to somebody wow. when they're signing autographs all day. So yeah. we, we got super lucky and but also lucky that the fact that they were willing to open up like that, having no prep on what we were going to talk about, ask them what our credentials were, if we'd done a movie before, you know, all these things. So mm-hmm. I think the stars really aligned with all that stuff. And when we sat and talked with him, I think, honestly, that he gets asked about Freddy Krueger so much to be asked the things that we were talking about. I, I could see that he sat down for five minutes and then wanted to stay for an hour, mm. you know, because we were talking about things that were a little more interesting, maybe. Yeah. But the time period, not necessarily this character that is so iconic. Plus he got to explore his experiences pre Elm street and talk about what it was like just 
in the world of the, the early 80s. Like being an actor, mm. being a stage actor in, in New York when it's very open and accepting. And then his account of how people all went back into the closet in the 80s was very... That conversation coming from Robert England reaches an audience that is that we were hoping to try to lure into this film. Wow. Yeah. So it was worked in our benefit for sure. That's great. That's really great. So were there any um, unexpected challenges that came with making a documentary that you didn't anticipate for all those oh, uh, aspiring documentarians out there? Uh, everything. I mean, everything is how everything. we get yeah. <laughs> uh, well okay so, is fun. so here's the thing here's the thing i am very i'm thrilled with the way it happened i do think that a lot of this stuff I, I don't think it's accidental i don't believe in fate necessarily but i do think that all these things came together because we tapped into something that was necessary that was brewing and we're kind of like you know, warriors in that sense that we're okay to stand up and say, this is what we need. This is what we're doing. This is what we want. You can follow our lead or not. So a lot of people came to us and helped us. We had a, an easy time in many regards. That being said, make a movie like this with your own money or no money is a challenge. So it means that every time you can't afford something, you can either omit it or you can learn to do it yourself and that's what we were having to do constantly and that was in the moment you can feel really deflated like oh my god i have another task i have to do on, on top of the 50 and like we're never going to get it done and how do you stay on track and how do you stay positive so that was that was the most challenging thing is ourselves you know hmm. uh, we all had to take turns like being uh, share care nurturing to each other being like you don't have to take this burden all on yourself like mm -hmm. wow i know you're frustrated it's hard please stop yelling at me please i know you don't mean me. it i mean the, <laughs> the beautiful and most challenging part was the kickstarter and getting that public attention so quickly in our process that everyone assumed that this was that we were a bigger production studio than we were and wanted it immediately. Hmm. So to like, where's our DVD where's three our DVD? months afterwards? And we want to give that to them, of course, but at the same time, it's like, we got to make it right. We have to make it worth your weight and actually deliver on the promise that we know we can do that. We can, yeah. that we promised you. Yeah. yeah. So it's hard when you have to do that also under the scrutiny of 1000 people that don't understand the process as well, you know? Right. So that's, it's a gift and a curse, but ultimately it's, it's an amazing thing, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. No, the, the best part of the whole, this tour is getting up on stage, doing our Q and A's during the credits when all the backer names come up and like at any, like I, we see snapshots of ourselves in the audience and like, there's no less than like 60 people on the screen at the same time. All of the, all of which have come from different parts of our personal lives as well as fans out there who are so committed to seeing the story being told. And you mean wanted... the backer list playing exactly, behind like, us for like a long time? <laughs> right. It's like our friends, our family, like my third grade English teacher. Wow. My, like, it's just like, oh, people have been rooting for us and I'm really excited to share this with them finally so that they know that but their the, money was well spent. The pressure. That was oh, fun. The pressure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't make your mother unhappy. Don't make her, you know. The, yeah, we can we could host a, a new symposium on how to do a Kickstarter and how to not lose your mind doing it. Mm. That's that's been one of the greatest teaching tools of this whole thing. And retrospectively, any Kickstarter tips for anybody who's planning on kickstarting similar projects? Uh, shorter the better. You mean time frame? Time frame. We did, mm. I think, 45 days, and they allow you 30. I think it's like two weeks or 30 days, 45 days and up. Uh, we thought uh, that was a good thing to have more time, and in fact, it isn't. Um, there's a psychology that you want your Kickstarter to end in the second half of the month, 
because people's bills get paid in the first month. Mm. So if they get paid again on the 15th, suddenly they have some fun money to spend. And why not donate it to some filmmakers? Right. At the same time... Um, I think that the, 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 what everybody wants, the things that will sell the most are the physical copies of DVDs or digital downloads. But that's really what people want is the end product. Don't offer 17 different t-shirts. Don't offer 17 different t-shirts because you also (laughs) got to fill all those one by one. But I I don't know. I do think it's kind of changing all the time. And when we did ours, it was four years ago. Mm -hmm. And things have changed a lot. So I don't know what's new in that regard. But I do know that like people love the the prizes essentially and they and if you actually go and research how this how this works there's certain days of the week and certain times of the day that they tell you now you you launch a new perk and people and it and it like kind of gooses the pace of your Mm. of all this and they also say for anyone that's going to attempt this don't freak out when it's two days before the ending and you haven't made your goal because you won't, it's all going to swarm at the very end. So you just have to maintain it with a smile. Everyone wants to be the hero pledge. Uh. So that last two days, I mean, we, we passed our mark, I think 36 hours before the end of our thing. Wasn't Robert England, one of our hero pledges. Absolutely. Robert (laughs) England, Clive Barker all gave us tweets. Yeah. It was, People were excited about it. Um, but the part we didn't talk about is like when that's done and you make it, suddenly there's like all this pressure. I needed to disappear from life for a minute. Like I got, I'm like, I can't beg anyone for money anymore. And I just need to step back and like be quiet and alone for a while. Yeah. It's very, it's very, you feel really naked after all that. Very, because you're very vulnerable, and you're, and then the expectation lands on you. So, yeah, you know what? This is the way making movies <laughs> is. It's everything is like, it's it. If it was something that one person could do themselves, it would be a different story. But because you've got to hold up the weight of something, and it takes a whole crew, it's just an emotional ride. Right. Plus, we had full time jobs as well during all of this. Oh, wow. And this this was definitely like the passion project for the last four or five years. I mean, full time. I do film sound for film full time. So I'm doing films while working on this film. And so it's nonstop seven days a week. So it's that's another challenge, too. If you're trying to stay focused on storytelling and you have to flip back and forth between stories and you do editing nonstop. But in the end, I think that made us do, like, I know it took a long time to make Scream Queen, but it it was a lot shorter than I think a lot of other people would have done. Because I think that we were, we're actually pretty good with that kind of stuff. Mm. Like, we know how to, we were good at making decisions. There was just a lot of them to make. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Were there any resources or books that were particularly helpful for you when making this documentary? Either yeah, filmmaking yeah. books or documentary books or courses or anything that really came in handy? I mean, my favorite filmmaking book was always Robert Rodriguez's um, Rebel Without a Crew. I yeah. read that at 12, 13 years old, and I was like, I'm going to sell my body to science to fund my first feature film. I didn't have to do that, thank God, but it was Got definitely... Got here somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Right? I'm just like, I, I was struck by a story of like, I'm going to be a filmmaker by any means necessary, and I'm not going to stop until I do it. And that's kind of the attitude that we went into this project with. It's like, no one can tell us no. We're going to make it. It just depends on what kind of story that is. Also, I think this is kind of a easy one but like Stephen King's on writing was really good it's really good because it's really easy for anyone to read that and be like oh okay I get it I feel like I could maybe write but he has some some points that a a chapter everyone everyone needs to read about about just how to edit your own work 
and how to be able to look at it and say, throw this in the garbage. I don't care how beautiful it sounds, throw it in the garbage. Like that's, we had to throw so much in the garbage, we could make a whole other documentary. Right. Uh, all these other topics that like, I was so in love with wanting to tell that just didn't work like with the, with the flow of the story. And, and so, yeah, you just have to, you just have to really, what does he call it? Kill, kill your, your darlings. Kill your darlings. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Cool. Oh, actually also a really good one. I just finished is, um, John Waters, um, Mr. Know-it-all. Nice. Where he talked about, uh, like directing Kathleen Turner in Serial Mom and just like what it means to, work with stars and what your job as the director is. And that was super, I mean, I read it after the fact of having worked on this project, but <laughs> it gave me a lot of insights. It's like actors want to be directed. Your job is to have something for them to do at all times and, and knowing what you need from them because they just want to make you happy. And in sense, you have to know what you want to be happy. Yeah. Cool. So last few questions. So seeing the movie in its finished form, what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? I don't necessarily mean money, but it can be time, energy, focus, or money. But what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? I, <laughs> I mean, this, this literally was hobbled together with anything that we could get our hands on. So a lot of the Cameras were borrowed from friends. A lot of the locations were stolen as quickly as we could get them just to shoot as quickly as possible. Um, I think that if I had more time, for sure. If So there was many times where we would go and do interviews and, you know, we'll sit down and speak to Clue Gulliver, right? But then I'll step away and, and say, you know what, I just got some new insight speaking to this person, let me go and do a little research and rewrite some questions. So time, of course, is is of the essence. I think research, researching your subject matter so you can get in a little bit deeper. That mm -hmm. takes a lot of time that we didn't really have a lot of, especially in the beginning. Yeah, we did a lot of our interviews in the beginning and our story fluctuates so much by the end that you kind of wish you could go back and ask new questions to your subjects to articulate this other point that you didn't know you were going to make in mm. the end. So that's, that's something you have to wrestle with. And we were still talking about shooting more interviews up until last year, until we just had to like lock ourselves in a room and be like, with what we have, what is the story that we can make? Mm. Yeah. So I, I do think that, I mean, I don't think there was any time wasted on our part. I can't think of anything that I would say, Oh, I wish that I had done more there because I did what I could with the time. Mm -hmm. um, less? Well, you know what? Transcribing everything. We should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this we've watched so many times that it's in our heads and we know it. We can, we can act it out. Everything. <laughs> all of it. Every, all, all of it. But it doing the, the there's a lot of times where we there's a lot of technical things that could have made it uh just just easier right that would have been good it's a learning curve mm -hmm. we know now <laughs> what, what would the purpose of transcribing have been i'm actually working on a documentary myself so this uh, is no, on a personal level this is really helpful to hear then you need to do this and you can do it very affordably right rev.com yes I'm sending um, this interview to Rev to have it transcribed. Perfect. Okay. Hey so guys. that means that you can like, so say you've got like 150 hours of footage, but you remember that somebody at one point said something about a red sweater, but now you can't find it. And you're like, did they tell me that in person or was right. that on camera? Mm. Now I can't remember. So I, it was yeah. fighting with the memory of how we thought conversations went. And points we were trying to make, but like, go find that there. If we had a transcription being able to tell us what the actual words were said, mm. it would have saved a lot of time than like hunting for mm. a phrase here or there. And in our defense, we weren't doing, we didn't, yes, we, we should have done it, but we were also, because we were hot off the heels of Kickstarter, trying to hurry with 
unrealistic deadlines, we thought, you know what, we don't have those weeks to waste doing this. Let's just jump into it. And then we already got going. So it like, yes, we should have just paused, done that and then moved forward. But I think we were naively trying to hurry. Mm. And that's that's what hurt us a little bit. But at that point, I mean, we did it. But it could have been a lot easier. Gotcha. Uh, transcribe your things. Learn how to edit your interview. Like, listen to your interviews at double speed. My issue was, like, I couldn't focus if someone was talking too slowly. So I learned to listen to everything, sped up, make all my notes that way so that I was actively engaged and mm. not zoning out. This is what I said every day, just about my mom. Like, <laughs> is my mom going to get this? Right. How do right. You do that? So you do what you got to do, and then you step back and reevaluate it with that in mind. And it's hard, but you'll yeah, get there. Yeah, the intro, it's the hardest part. It's like, how much information does one need to know before the story really gets going? Mm -hmm. And then when do you lay your card at the right time? to reveal more information. That was the art mm. of, of the structure. I always told Tyler during our production, don't worry about the introduction. Let's just make our movie and then we will work on that because it's always the hardest. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if maybe someone else had been able to say, hey, this is what you need to do and we did it. Would that have helped us along the way or not? Mm. So I don't know because I feel like your intro is like the intro of your thesis. Like you have to touch on everything that you're going to do in the film and tease it in such a way that someone's going to be like, yes, I'm going to give you an hour and a half of my life based on this two minute introduction. Mm -hmm. And it took us a long time and we thought we had it and we didn't. And someone told us, you know, like, you really need to throw Freddy Krueger in the beginning. And suddenly like that unlocked how we introduce Mark because on paper, most people don't know who Mark Patton is, mm -hmm. but everyone in the world knows who Freddy Krueger is. So if you introduce poor Freddy Krueger and then Mark, they go along with the ride because suddenly you put it in their living room, you put it in their childhood memories. And now, like, oh, this guy's a part of that? How come I don't know about him? And suddenly the mystery of that unlocked the rest of the story because mm. you were able to get that through line as quickly as possible. Right. Thanks again, guys. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. 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 All right. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to check out the show on the Instagrams at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. I'm on Twitter at the exact same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.